Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show, we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. The Trump administration this week announced a sweeping new restriction on travelers from eight countries, Chad, Iran, Libya, North Korea, Somalia, Syria, Venezuela, and Yemen. Days later, the administration formally established that the United States will take in no more than 45,000 refugees fleeing conflict around the world. This is a record low cap on the number of refugees that the United States has ever resettled since 1980. And to put this in context, the previous cap authorized by President Obama was at 110,000. The travel ban and refugee cap are two separate policies, but they are related, at least politically, in the eyes of this administration. With the exception of Venezuela, in which only government officials are targeted, the travel ban prevents nearly any national from these countries from obtaining a visa to visit, live, work, or study in the United States. According to my podcast guest Mark Hetfield, there is one historic precedent for this, the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which was an explicitly racist law barring all Chinese migration to the United States. Hetfield is president of HIAS, a Jewish nonprofit organization that is one of nine American agencies that resettles refugees in the United States. And in this episode, Mark discusses the travel ban, its implications for people both in the United States and abroad, and also his organization's new legal strategy to confront this ban. And Hyas has been a part of a lawsuit against the previous iteration of Trump's travel-slash-Muslim ban. We also discuss at length this new refugee cap, which is an unprecedented abrogation of the traditional American approach to refugee admissions. Before we begin, I wanted to let you all know that Humanity in Action is now accepting applications for its summer fellowship program. If you are a current university student or recent graduate and you are listening to this podcast, you are most certainly the target audience for the Humanity in Action Fellowship. This is an intense month-long study of human rights and minority rights in both contemporary and historic contexts. The fellowships are funded and take place in Amsterdam, Berlin, Copenhagen, Sarajevo, Warsaw, Atlanta, and Detroit. I participated in this fellowship years ago, and it changed my life in a very profound way, and I so strongly encourage you to apply. I'll post a link to the application on globaldispatchespodcast.com, and after the show, I'll tell you a little bit more about my own experience and, frankly, why, why if you are listening to this, you need to apply to Humanity in Action right now. Okay, here is Mark Hetfield of Hyas. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. 
Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, what was announced on the travel ban is that the number of countries um, that are that are impacted was being increased uh, by including uh, Venezuela as well as North Korea. However, they they no longer have Sudan designated as a country. Uh, Chad has also been designated now as a uh, country which is subject to the travel ban. They also finally explained some type of criteria that they're applying to determine what countries, uh, whether or not a country should be designated as subject to the travel ban. And what was that criteria? What's ostensibly the, the rationale? Well, um, it's an, they look at a number of things. One is, does a government cooperate with the United States in terms of providing information about its nationals? Um, does the government accept individuals who are deported of that nationality? Uh, is that government a uh, already been certified as uh, eligible for its nationals to participate in the visa waiver program, meaning its nationals are at low risk of, of overstay, uh, overstaying their visas. So it, it looks at a number of, of different uh, criteria. So at least there's some kind of a rational basis behind it. Um, and it actually indicated that Iraq, interestingly enough, would not have qualified, uh, but that due to other uh, due to other considerations and the importance of Iraq as an ally, uh, they were not subjecting it to the travel ban, even though it would have fallen uh, within those criteria. Which which just kind of is a demonstration of the broad discretion that the president has in these things, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the president does have broad discretion over issues relating to immigration. But the reason why uh, this has been successfully challenged in court, including in the case that, that Hyas brought, is because it, it is his implementation of a Muslim ban, of his campaign promise to effectively ban Muslims from the United States. And uh, this uh, is obviously his third attempt, his third executive order at this. Um, it's the most carefully crafted of the three, but still to us, it's, it's still an effort to carry out his Muslim ban. His campaign promise of a Muslim ban. Have you um, entered any sort of new lawsuit against this particular travel ban? Well, you see, our, our lawsuit is actually pending before the Supreme Court. Our case was consolidated in the Fourth Circuit, was consolidated with the Hawaii case in the Ninth Circuit, and it's under appeal before the Supreme Court. And we were supposed to have oral arguments on October 10th. But the, uh, the Supreme Court has canceled that oral argument and asked for new briefs because they recognize that this new travel ban executive order, uh, the third executive order, uh, does raise different issues. And I think it's also important to note that uh, it, it's a very this travel ban is explicit that uh, a bona fide family relationship will not exempt you from being subject to this travel ban. However, if you already have a visa. Uh, you will be exempted uh, from the travel ban. Or if you already have a green card, you will be exempted. But a bona fide family relationship uh, will not exempt you in spite of the Supreme Court's ruling that that would be an exemption under the second travel ban. So if you are a Chadian citizen and your you know, mom lives in the U.S., you will not be able to, to travel to the U.S. to visit her. Is that That's correct? correct? That's correct. So there, there is waiver authority. Uh, but it's it's extremely restrictive. 
And who it is? Does the waiver have to go all the way up to like uh, a top official in the State Department? Um, both the State Department and Homeland Security, I believe. So getting a waiver is a really kind of a long shot in most right. circumstances. Right. Okay. So so just explain to me who is like who is affected by these bans? Is it every single national of those countries um, uh, that were listed? Is just are, well, in, unless they have uh, already have some sort of green card. Um, green card or a visa or, visa, or a valid or like visa. a student visa. Right. 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 Yeah. That's already That's already been issued. But they're not um, going to get a new visa. Like we're not taking any more Chadian students to Harvard or anything like that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it just kind of grandfathers in those people who already have visas. The one exception is Venezuela, where the Venezuela ban actually only applies at this time to government officials. It doesn't apply to the entire population. So is there any precedent uh, for issuing a total ban on immigration based on nationality? Not this sweeping. Certainly not. Um, certainly not. I mean, yeah, sure. There was the Chinese Exclusion Act <laughs> of, wow. the, uh, of the 19th century that was uh, signed into effect by President Chester A. Arthur. Uh, that was a sweeping ban. Uh, applied to a specific nationality so there you uh, there go was... that, that's that's the, the historic precedent <laughs> that's the only one that i can think of um uh, so i mean, i guess um but there there have been like limited bans uh that previous uh, administrations have imposed but nothing that's like indefinite and nothing based exclusively on one's nationality right i mean you'll remember that president carter um uh, issued some restrictions against Iranian Iranian visa holders after the uh, during the hostage crisis, for example. But nothing uh, this sweeping, nothing that compares to this. So, are you preparing a new brief in which to challenge this new ban now that your previous brief will not be heard by the Supreme Court? Yes, absolutely. And in this case, as you know, I mean, Hayes often brings cases uh, on behalf of our clients. Uh, to, to court because we we represent people who are in deportation proceedings who often have a refugee claim or an asylum claim so we want to make sure they get deported in this case though we're not representing somebody we are the plaintiff we are the affected party so our lawyers are the aclu and the national immigrant law center uh, nilk and they are preparing uh, the legal brief but yes we're definitely preparing a brief and we are we are challenging this i uh, like do you expect this challenge to be um do you expect your challenge to go anywhere there? I mean, it really does seem that, you know, the, the White House, the president does have broad executive authority in this regard. I mean, just be, it, what's unprecedented here is the way in which this current president is is using the authority, but the authority seems to be there. Well, the authority seemed to be there with the first executive ban, the second executive ban, and the third executive ban against refugees and uh, and Muslims, uh, the travel ban and the refugee ban. The president has very wide authority, but our argument has been that this president overstepped that authority because he is implementing his campaign promise to effect a Muslim ban. So to us, uh, this is just a, uh, a, a slightly better crafted version of the Muslim ban. This is Muslim ban 3.0. And and it sort of tries to get around that by including North Korea and Venezuela. Right. Very clever. Do you know of anyone who has been directly affected by this yet? We certainly know a lot of people that will be affected. Um, but nobody's been affected directly yet because it, it isn't in effect yet. So what, what, what are some like the circumstances of people who will be affected by this? 
Well, anybody who wants to come to the U.S. and study from any of those countries, anybody who wants to come to the U.S. and visit family or – uh, or, or who wants to, who has, who has to transfer a, a, an employment position to this country. I mean, basically, anybody who is not a diplomat is going to be impacted by this, or anybody who does not already have a valid uh, visa or, or green card is going to be impacted by this. Um, there is another exception uh, for, uh, for refugees, um, but of course, refugees are subject to their own ban. Well, that that's what I, that brings me to to the next kind of bit of of news from the Trump administration this week, which is that they will lower the cap of the number of refugees admitted to the United States to forty five thousand in the next fiscal year, which is the the lowest you know ever since nineteen eighty when these uh, program was was first implemented. Um, I, I guess we sort of suspected this. Here, let's put it this way: Can you explain what the refugee cap is to listeners who are kind of unaware of how resettlement works? It's interesting that even though the United States is a country of refugees, we didn't have a formal refugee program uh, or even a, a statute that governed the admission of refugees until the Refugee Act of 1980. And that's because under President Carter, we ha- basically had three refugee crises that came to a head at the same time. There was a, a mass migration of Soviet Jews that occurred at the end of the 1970s. There was the Cuban Marielito uh, boat lift. And there was the Indo-Chinese uh, boat crisis, which was the biggest of the three. All of these happened at basically the same time. And the uh, Congress finally realized we can't just wing it anymore with regard to letting refugees in. We need an actual uh, statutory framework. And so as part of that, uh, for refugees that are to be interviewed and hand-selected by the U.S. government overseas, uh, they are uh, subject to a numerical limit. And that numerical limit is set by the president each year in a presidential determination. And that that uh, limit has ranged from anywhere from 67,000 to uh, around 214,000. Um, but uh, it has never been at at uh, 45,000, which is what this president wants to set it at. And, and this is this is a ceiling. I mean, that's the important thing. It's often treated as a target by the administration, as it should be, because uh, you should not let these slots expire unused at the end of the year. Because every with for every single refugee slot, there, there a life is essentially saved or given a new a chance for a new beginning um, after living a very precarious existence as a refugee in, in a refugee camp for often oftentimes for many years. Um, so every slot should should be used and that has so it's been treated as both a ceiling and a target but it is legally just a ceiling so our concern is as low as the ceiling is 45,000 which is pathetic given the enormity of the world refugee crisis and the capacity of this country and the history of this country uh, we're quite concerned that some of those slots or a lot of those slots may not even go used if the Trump administration uh, doesn't make the effort so, so that's fascinating because this is again something that's totally unprecedented. Uh, not only do you have such a profoundly low number of uh, refugees admitted as as the cap, but you are concerned, I think probably rightfully so, that the administration won't even, in good faith, seek to meet that cap, but rather will slow walk deliberately or not uh, the processes required to. Uh, actually bring refugees from their current countries to the United States? 
Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Because the refugee process has developed over the last 37 years as a real Rube Goldberg device. Um, in other words, it's just become incredibly complicated and cumbersome to get through the refugee resettlement uh, identification and approval process. It takes 18 to 24 months if you get through it at all, and many people don't. And, uh, and they keep adding more and more security protocols on, uh, the, and they never take them away. They just keep adding more and more layers on, which is why it's ridiculous when the president says these people are unvetted. They're more vetted than any other migrant is anywhere in the world. Um, and so it takes a lot of effort to get people through this system. And uh, if you don't really push them through, they're not going to serve. They're not going to make it through. Yeah. And, and you know, you as, as I've, I've spoken with other uh, refugee resettlement uh, agencies um, and, and they've they've kind of made the point that if you miss like one deadline, uh, it sort of sends you into this like Kafkaesque spiral of missing deadlines and missing, you know, your ability to file forms. And it just sort of, you know, basically keeps you in this kind of bureaucratic limbo that will prevent you from ever, you know, getting successfully through those 18 steps. That's exactly right. Uh, one other um, kind of bit of justification that the president laid out when um, setting this, or what I should say, when he suggested um, this, I, this, this lowering the number of, of refugees for admittance was something I noticed during his speech to the UN General Assembly, which is this idea that you could sort of save money by providing for refugee assistance abroad rather than um, admitting uh, refugees for uh, you know resettlement in the United States as if it was like a one-to-one trade. Um, the the problem, you know, as I saw with that, is that the the refugees that are accepted for admittance are only selected by the UN Refugee Agency because there's some sort of like extraordinary circumstance that prevents them from remaining in the country to which they've fled. Right. I mean, to me, that when I heard him say that at the General Assembly, and it's not the first time he said that, I found it absolutely infuriating because. It is already U.S. policy to help refugees in their region. I mean, that is the approach that we take. Um, the vast majority of the humanitarian assistance we give to refugees is spent to do exactly that. And only less than 1% of refugees actually get resettled to the United States or some other third country. And it's those refugees who, as you said, are either the most vulnerable or it's refugees who have close family in the United States, or it's refugees who we, ha- we, we try to, as a gesture to, let's say, a refugee hosting country like Lebanon, which is being overrun by refugees, uh, where we say, okay, uh, we, we, we empathize with you, we're going to give you assistance, and we're going to take a number of the most vulnerable refugees um, out of your country into the United States to share responsibility with you for this problem that you didn't create. Uh, and and so now that these numbers are going to be so dramatically lower than they have in in the past, I mean, how will that affect you as a refugee resettlement agency? Well, it affects us in in a big way. I mean, first of all, HIAS is the refugee resettlement agency of the American Jewish community, and we have Jewish family service agencies and other. Um, partners all over the country. We have 377 synagogues, 377 congregations that 
uh, have signed up to be part of our welcome campaign to welcome refugees to this country. We have over 2,000 rabbis who have um, expressed their support for a refugee resettlement um, in 48 states. So we have a huge constituency that is ready and has the resources uh, and the will and the enthusiasm to welcome refugees to this country. And they're not coming, right? They're not being allowed in, in spite of the fact that the need is greater than ever. So that's hugely disappointing to the American Jewish community that we represent. And the other five faith-based agencies and the other uh, three secular agencies have similar issues. Um, we, we, we are in a position, we have tremendous capacity, and that capacity is going to go unused, which is a shame, given that so many lives are at stake. So what, what's next for, for you, then, personally? Like, how, how are you confronting this? Well, we're fighting it with everything we have. We have, our obviously, our litigation that continues in court. Um, we, we have our community demanding that the United States continue to be a welcoming country for refugees. Uh, so we're just trying to make as much noise as possible. And, um, and is, is like the, the best outcome at this point in terms of, of the, the refugee cap, just that the Trump administration reaches that cap? Well, for this year, um, that's, that's, our, that's our immediate goal. Yes, we would like to see them increase the cap, which they could do after following uh, certain procedures. They actually have funding right now in the continuing resolution to bring in 75,000 refugees, which again is far, far short of the need, but uh, it's certainly much better than 45,000. So we will continue to agitate to bring in more refugees. My understanding from uh, the State Department is that the pipeline of people that are in the system, uh, in, in line basically to come to the United States as resettled refugees, is 250,000 people. So there is a huge, huge pipeline. So we're just going to keep pushing to, for America to be a more welcoming country and to uh, respect the pledges that we made to the international community that we're going to do more, not less, to help solve this global refugee crisis. Uh, well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. No, my pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mark for speaking with me on the road. I think he was between meetings trying to fight this this newest travel ban. So thank you so much for taking time to speak with me and sharing your thoughts with my audience about this, frankly, egregious new policy. Okay, so on Humanity in Action. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is an intense month-long fellowship that takes a look at human rights in both a contemporary and historic context in the cities in which the fellowship takes place. And as I said earlier, it, it changed my life. So I participated in this fellowship between my sophomore and junior year at college, so a few years ago. But uh, it set me on the path, frankly, that I am on today, and I could draw a direct line between that fellowship experience and this podcast. The fellowship exposed me to ideas and individuals that I didn't even know sort of existed in the world. It uh, opened me up to new ideas that uh, have been sort of animating me personally and have driven me professionally since I 
participated in this fellowship over 15 years ago. In addition to the summer fellowship for uh, students who finish the fellowship and, and complete certain requirements, you are also eligible to become a senior fellow. And I am a senior fellow and have been one since I, I completed those requirements. And when you are a senior fellow, you have a host of opportunities for internships and uh, other events that open up to you. I participated in two of these life-changing internships. In 2002, I interned at Interpol as a Humanity in Action senior fellow. This is the International Criminal Police Organization. Frankly, I should do an episode on it sometime, but a uh, really interesting examination and, and for me, education on both transnational organized crime and also the value of international cooperation to confront organized crime. Really interesting stuff. And after that, a year later, I had the opportunity because of Humanity in Action to intern at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the War Crimes Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And I was part of uh, a small team of of prosecutors that were investigating Slobodan Milosevic's war crimes in in Bosnia. And I was an intern there, a a small uh, pea in the pod, as it were, but nonetheless felt that I made an actual contribution to his uh, his trial. It was a really fascinating experience and my first actually entry point into the the UN system. Needless to say, uh, it was a life-changing event for me. And I just so strongly encourage you to apply. As I said earlier, if you're a listener to this podcast and you are a recent or current, recent graduate or current student uh, at a university, then you really, you know, need to, to apply. Go check out the application. I'll post a, a link to it on, uh, globaldispatchespodcast.com. And some of my best friends to this day are humanity in action senior fellows. So, so there you go. All right. Thanks all for listening. See you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.